Africa rise and shine Africa tsoza Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figilele Nwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, pressure mounts on Sudan's military to hand over power to civilians, and UN chief condemns attack on two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman. In economics news, Zambia's president threatens to fine mining firms that break the law. And in sports news, Australia beats Brazil at the FIFA Women's World Cup. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Sudan's Public Prosecution Service has charged ousted President Omar al-Bashir with corruption, among other things. The official Sunan News Agency quotes an unnamed official as saying that al-Bashir is facing charges including possession of foreign funds, acquiring suspected and illegal wealth and ordering the state of emergency. Last month, the public prosecutor also charged al-Bashir with incitement and involvement in the killing of protesters. The charges stem from an inquiry into the death of a doctor during protests that led to the end of his rule in April. Meanwhile, Sudan's ruling military council has admitted for the first time that it ordered the security forces to break up a protest camp earlier this month during which dozens of people were shot dead, the BBC's Virgil Keane reports. After 10 days of growing condemnation, Sudan's military rulers say they regret that some mistakes happened during the operation to clear the protest site but apparently not sufficient regret to allow an independent international investigation. Instead, the regime says it will announce the results of its own probe on Saturday and that it's already arrested some officers. The opposition and many in the international community will suspect a cover-up. There is now a growing diplomatic effort involving the United States and the African Union to achieve a political solution and transition to civilian rule. Malian President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita has visited the site of an ethnic massacre in which gunmen killed dozens of people. Attackers believed to belong to the Fulani ethnic group raided a rival ethnic Dogon village in Bankas on Sunday and Monday, killing 35 people. Local authorities are ever maintained the real figure is 95. Neither has produced evidence of these stalls. Cater cut short a trip to Switzerland on Wednesday to return to Mali and handle the fallout from the attack. Meanwhile, Mali's Council of Ministers fired the governor of the region in which the killings occurred, one of several such atrocities there over the past few months. A top committee of the World Health Organization will convene in Geneva, Switzerland to consider whether the current Ebola outbreak in Central Africa constitutes a global health crisis. This comes after a five-year-old boy who traveled with his family to Uganda from the DRC died from the disease. Ugandan authorities later confirmed that a second person, the boy's grandmother, also died. The United Nations Secretary General spokesperson Stefan Dujaric. 
Cases of Ebola now confirmed in Uganda. The World Health Organization is reconvening the Emergency Committee on International Health Regulations. That meeting will take place tomorrow in Geneva. The meeting's objective will be to ascertain whether the outbreak continues, uh, constitutes a public health emergency of international concern. This will be the third meeting of the committee since the beginning of the outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And finally, the Australian man accused of shooting dead 51 people in two attacks on mosques in Christchurch in New Zealand earlier this year has pleaded not guilty on multiple murder and terrorism charges. 28-year-old Brenton Tarrant will stand trial in May next year on 51 counts of murder, 40 of attempted murder and engaging in terrorism. The BBC's Ewell Griffiths reports. Brenton Tarrant's lawyer entered a series of pleas on his behalf, answering not guilty to 51 counts of murder, 40 counts of attempted murder and one count of engaging in an act of terror. It's the first time the charge has been used in New Zealand's history. The 28-year-old is being held in isolation at a high-security wing of an Auckland prison. Wearing a grey sweatshirt, he appeared via a video link and will remain in custody ahead of his trial, which is due to take place in May next year. Some of the survivors of the shootings and relatives of the victims were in court. A few gasped and became tearful as the not guilty pleas were entered. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms, on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. International pressure is mounting on Sudan's military to hand over power to civilian rule. The United States has joined efforts to press the military in that country and the civic opposition towards a deal on a transition to democracy. Former President Omar al-Bashir was overthrown two months ago by a civic revolution. The country is currently experiencing a wave of violence which has seen the massacre and raping of civilians. There is also a communications shutdown with Sudanese people and the media struggling to send information out about the happenings in the East African country. Noma Bolani reports. Sudan, a country that has experienced a shutdown, communication is now a challenge. The military government has blocked the internet and there's little information coming out of Sudan since the start of the civil disobedience campaign. The protests were launched earlier this month against the country's military leaders. They grabbed power after the fall of Omar al-Bashir in April. The civil revolution resulted in the overthrow of al-Bashir. Former President Thabo Mbeki who was the African Union's envoy to Sudan, says the contention over which side should make decisions will continue to fuel the unrest. A part of the challenge with regard to the design of the transitional period in Sudan is that there's a contention between the military and this opposition as to who they agree that they need to form joint structures to take the country through the transition until the elections. Uh, they agree about that, the joint structures. 
But the main question is to be who leads? Who should be the dominant group? Who should be the major group? Militia have been terrorizing citizens and protesters in the capital city. The opposition says more than 100 people were killed. The government has confirmed only 61 casualties. Mbegi says the military leaders should focus on stabilizing the situation. The issue of stability uh, of Sudan, stability, in sense of uh, law and order, fight against crime and all that, is something that would now rely in the hands mainly of the military. And the military are saying that we have that role. The civilians can't play a role of stabilizing the country. We can. But if we allow them to become the dominant force, we don't know what impact they would have even on that matter of the stability of Sudan. The African Union has suspended Sudan's continental body activities while the United Nations has called for dialogue between the military and civil opposition. That report by Noma Bolani. With news that Ebola virus disease has now surfaced in Uganda, where it has claimed two lives so far this week, the World Health Organization is hopeful the country's efforts to protect communities will quickly prove successful. In an interview with Daniel Johnson from UN News, a WHO spokesperson, Tariq Yazarevich, explains what the priorities are for the UN Health Agency and the Ugandan authorities. Well, uh, we uh, received the information from the Ministry of Health of Uganda that the second of three uh, persons who were confirmed uh, Ebola positive has passed away. So obviously it is very important that the Ministry of Health together with the World Health Organization goes quickly to this area where the cases have been identified to make sure that all those who may have been in contact with these People are being monitored and obviously there is a cooperation between ministries of health of Uganda and Democratic Republic of Congo on a number of issues trying to make the response measures being coordinated. And a reported 50 or so contacts from these people who were infected with Ebola. What's the latest figure on contacts and how many are you tracing right now? Well, the numbers are changing, obviously, but we are right now compiling the list of those who may have been in touch with members of this family who have tested positive. It is important that these people are identified, that they are offered vaccine, and that they are followed for 21 days. Uganda has been working on preparedness since the beginning of the outbreak in the RC, and we hope that this preparedness work will now bear its fruits, aiming to shut down this uh, outbreak quickly. And you have your WHO Director General tomorrow reconvening the International Health Regulations Emergency Committee. It's not looking very good, is it? We are convening an emergency committee tomorrow. We will listen to the advice of the emergency committee as it has been the case in the past. That's uh, WHO spokesperson Tariq Yazarevich speaking to Daniel Johnson from UN News. The United States Secretary of State has blamed Iran for the attacks on two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman earlier on Thursday as the Security Council met in close discussions on the matter. This comes amidst calls from the UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres for the facts to be established while warning that the world could not afford a major confrontation in the Gulf. Pompeo says the attacks were just the latest in a series of aggressive moves by Iran and its surrogates against American and allied interests and called it a threat to international peace and security. But not all the members of the Security Council are embracing Washington's position. Show and Bryce Peace reports. 
The United States says it knows who carried out the attacks on two tankers, one Norwegian and another Singaporean, near one of the busiest oil shipping lanes in the world. One tanker left ablaze, and both adrift, with U.S. Navy vessels in the region providing assistance. U.S. Secretary of State Michael Pompeo. It is the assessment of the United States government that the Islamic Republic of Iran is responsible for the attacks that occurred in the Gulf of Oman today. This assessment is based on intelligence, the weapons used, the level of expertise needed to execute the operation, recent similar Iranian attacks on shipping, and the fact that no proxy group operating in the area has the resources and proficiency to act with such a high degree of sophistication. Iran called the attack suspicious and urged a regional dialogue. Russia appeared to agree through UN Envoy Ambassador Vasilina Benzia. There's a need to come together to achieve one of the most important goals before us today, launching regional dialogue aimed at establishing a security architecture in the Persian Gulf, where currently, according to our views, tensions are being artificially fueled and inflamed around Iran. The UN chief, Antonio Guterres, while condemning the incidents, called for the facts to be established. I note with deep concern this morning's security incidents in the Strait of Hormuz. I strongly condemned any attack against civilian vessels. Facts must be established and responsibilities clarified. And if there is something the world cannot afford is a major confrontation in the Gulf region. With the meeting of the Council merely a preliminary discussion, the body is likely to remain seized of the matter, as explained by Council President and Kuwaiti Ambassador Mansour al-Ottaibi. In my national capacity, uh, because this incident in, in the Gulf, in, in our region, and we are very grateful and we are supportive that the Council discussed it today, and uh, we are really pleased to hear that all Council members condemn what happened, and it is a violation of the international law, and it's a, it's a criminal act, and we uh, would like to see investigation, thorough investigations, and we would like to know who was behind this uh, incident. Council diplomats told SABC News that the condemnation of the attacks on the two oil tankers was unanimous among all council members, but that the United States did not present any evidence to back up their claims of Iran's culpability, only allegations. I asked the president of the council if he believes Iran was responsible. His response, no comment. Washington believes Iran is lashing out because the government there wants stiff sanctions imposed on them lifted. Iran, for its part, has ruled out direct negotiations with the United States. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. Let's talk about it. Hi, I'm Joe Manglia. And I'm Tabitha Jala. Join us at 9 a.m. Central African Time. Let's, Let's talk, talk about it. A program on AIDS and other social issues. A program that will encourage a positive lifestyle to young people affected and infected. Let's, Let's talk, talk about, about it at 9 a.m. Central African Time on Channel Africa. The South African Parliament will spend about 2 million rands for the State of a Nation address. This was revealed by the presiding officers of Parliament during a briefing 
on preparations for the SONA next Thursday. Presiding officers also say they don't expect any disruption during the event. This will be the second SONA for this year to be delivered by President Sil Ramaphosa during a joint sitting of Parliament. Mercedes Percent reports. Deputy Speaker Lichesa Tenodi says as presiding officers, they are confident of hosting a successful State of the Nation address for the President to deliver his message to the nation. He says this will come at a lower budget when compared to the one five years ago. Parliament has budgeted a total of what will likely be two million plus or so for the State of the Nation address ceremony and indications are that we will spend significantly less than the budgeted figure. For the February SONA ceremony, we budgeted over 2 million, but closed with a total spending of uh, 1.6 million. Parliament has been tightening SONA budgets in the last few years, uh, which has, despite the price inflation, came down to 9.2 million five years ago to 2 million for this SONA ceremony. Once again, there will be no post-address dinner for MPs and guests. They will have it on their own, at their own expense. We will have it on our own, at our own expense. The two million rand budget excludes the defense force. This was clarified by NCOP chairperson Amos Masondo. The two million does not include the contribution which was made by the Department of Defense. Um, I, I guess this has always uh, been the case in the past. And yeah, this is in keeping with, with tradition and practice. National Assembly Speaker Tandi Mudise says no disruptions are expected. She says they will fall back on the implementation of the joint rules of parliament. Mudise was responding to questions from the media. The question on whether we're expecting any disruptions. We're not expecting any disruptions. We have not been given any indication that there's going to be any disruption. Have we any contingencies, extraordinary measures? No, we will not. We will stick to what we usually do, our rules. We will ensure that there is decorum. Um, If anything happens, we will fall back on our rules and do what we usually do. Strictly go through the session relying on the rules of of a joint sitting of parliament. About 1,200 guests will attend the event. However, various public activities, which have always been part of the SONA ceremony, will not take place. Deputy Speaker Tenodi says this is done without undermining the constitutional duty of ensuring public involvement in SONA. Tenodi elaborates on activities which have been suspended. These aspects include the junior guard, civil guard who form a guard of honor for the state procession, the eminent persons who are usually selected from provinces on the basis of their outstanding uh, achievements in their respective fields will also not be part of the ceremony. Nine lucky winners of radio competition selected from each of our provinces to attend the joint sitting have also not been included this time around. The Imbongi, which usually ushers presidents into the chamber ahead of the address and is selected in concurrence with the presidency, has also been withdrawn following discussions with the president. 
Tenodi says the ceremony will reflect the constitutional makeup of the state with a procession consisting of the judiciary, the legislature and the executive. The deputy speaker says there will still be a full ceremonial parade of the South African Defence Force which consists of the Army, the Navy and the Air Force to showcase the strength, drills and traditions of the military. Tenodi says among the 1,200 guests who have been invited are former presidents, deputy presidents, presiding officers, chief justices, veterans of the liberation struggle, and the two surviving Rivonia trialists, Andrew Mlangeni and Dennis Goldberg. That report by Mercedes Percent. 43 years after the Soweto uprising, young people still find themselves at the center of the South African struggles. Today's youth have taken the baton from the class of 1976 and continue to be trailblazers in the fight for social and economic transformation. As South Africa commemorates Youth Day, whose theme this year is 25 years of democracy, a celebration of youth activism. Our reporter Numalizo Mandela takes a deeper look at how youth activism is standing up to challenges in the country. While the youth of 76 was dealing with the struggles of an unjust and oppressive laws, today's youth are faced with lack of transformation, racial inequality and other social ills. It is these struggles that led to protests such as hashtag fees must fall and total shutdown. One of the young people that led the protest is 28-year-old Tona University of Technology student Stembison Lovu. Education in this country was treated like a commodity only for those who can afford were able to enter universities. But now with the struggle for free education, I can even now take my younger sister whereby we only survive with the grant of our aunt and go and start in Stellenbosch or Rhodes University for free. Lova says despite the success of fees must fall protest, the levels of youth activism in the country are low. I think that uh, generally there has been a decay of uh, youth activism in our country, more especially if you can check on the recent election. Most of the youth of South Africa did not go out there and vote for this uh, sixth administration of our country. So it shows that our youth is not properly mobilized, it's not properly organized. I don't know whether it's a matter of uh, the lack of uh, youth formations that properly guide youth and direct them towards uh, a certain generational mission or what, but I feel that there is indeed a void of, of uh, youth activism in our country. Young black women have not been sitting on the sidelines of these important struggles. With hashtags such as Men Are Trash and Me Too, more young women have found their voices and are speaking out against gender-based violence and sexual harassment. Last year in August, which is Women's Month, South Africa and the world witnessed a significant moment in recent history. Women from multiple backgrounds successfully came together to march towards a world free of gender-based violence under the banner of hashtag total shutdown. One of the organizers of that march was Luiso Saliso. I'm a survivor of gender-based violence myself, but there was a time whereby... Um, it, it, it was like all over media where women were constantly being killed, disappearing, and children as well. And it really felt like the statistics were going up and the government was doing nothing. Uh, we've been complaining on social media. And yes, social media is a very plat- a powerful platform to mobilize. But it seemed like nothing was really being done in terms of policies and laws and so forth. And so I woke up one morning and I wrote um, a status on Facebook where I tagged fellow activists and feminists and the LGBTQIA community and basically shut the country down to make sure that governments stands up and does something about the war on our bodies.
Unlike her counterpart, Tembiso, Loiso believes that there are many young activists in the country. However, ageism and classism is silencing those voices. Even in activism spaces, um, there's a lot of ageism that happens in those spaces, a lot of classism that happens in those places when we, as young, which I discovered as a young activist. And um, we have so much to contribute, but sometimes we are really suffocated because we are told that no you are young and you need to know your place in some kind of way so we do have a voice but then we're not actually being allowed to to be heard many other young activists are not known or express themselves by going to the streets one such activist is farai mubaiwa born to a south african mother and a zimbabwean father a leader activist and African feminist. At 24 years old, Mubaiwa has achieved so much, including co-founding the NGO Africa Matters, which aims at changing the narrative of Africa in the eyes of the youth. Mubaiwa believes that activism does not only belong in the streets or political space. Often when we talk of activists, there's this idea that you know activists belong on the streets protesting, especially in corporate spaces or workplaces like these. When you think of activists, they, there's often that separation of, no, but those guys are the ones over there. As a country, we need to involve activists in different spaces, whether they're formal spaces, whether it's corporate spaces, whether it's governmental spaces, so that we can see that change happen tangibly. But we also have the responsibility to learn from those older than us about how have they addressed the issues and how can then we come up with innovative and collaborative approaches to properly address different issues. This sentiment is also shared by political analyst and young social activist Kaya Sitol. So of course some people might see strikes as being obviously the most visible form of activism but there's also a lot of young people who actually do some form of passive activism, desktop activism where they write opinion pieces, they influence the type of conversations that happen in legislatures and even in parliament. So activism does take multiple forms and luckily we do not have to restrict young people to one form of activism and say this is the legitimate one. They all have some element of legitimacy. Sitola says youth activism is not only important in South Africa but the entire African continent. He says with the population of Africa getting younger, it means that issues that are specific to young people need to be given a central space in important conversations. And of course young people need to be able to be the ones that actually make that information available We cannot expect that the older generation is going to share the same intimacy with the nature of the issues and the challenges that young people are facing if young people themselves do not actually make that information available. So activism plays a very active role in simply elevating the discourse. The outcome of last month's general elections saw the translating of this activism into politics, with some of these young activists going to parliament as new MPs. Sitola believes that this is a significant development in youth activism. For a long time, young people felt a sense of detachment towards mainstream politics. You sort of saw perhaps the older generation dominating the political discourse. And sometimes what really triggers people and gets them to start engaging is the ability to, re- to relate to a person who's delivering the message. And of course, when that person looks as young as you are, somebody you might have seen on campus, you feel that it will be easier for you to disseminate what your ideas are, even if you don't get them to agree what those ideas are. But I do think that it then reduces that sense of detachment that young people used to fill with politics. Sitola adds that the fact that these new young MPs are educated means that they will not overstay as they have other options. In some cases politicians are regarded as people who have, don't have any other option. So for them it becomes a place of comfort. You simply say I'm going to just bide my time for the next five years and hope to get re-elected. But I think younger people who do have alternatives will be able to say look I'm here to achieve this particular mandate and if this is not the space for me to do it, if I feel frustrated or if I feel there's a lot of pushback, I'm able to get out and actually have a career in an alternative platform. 
That was political analyst and young social activist Kayas Tole ending that report by Nomalizo Mandela in Johannesburg. People with albinism still face multiple forms of discrimination and abuse. That's according to the Albinism Society of South Africa. On Thursday, it was International Albinism Awareness Day, a day declared by the UN on the 18th of December in 2014. In South Africa, an event to mark the day took place at Nazrek outside Soweto. Challenges faced by people with albinism ranging from unemployment to being discriminated against were discussed. Garabo Masombuka reports. Still standing strong is the theme for this year's International Albinism Awareness Day. This is a call to recognize, celebrate and stand in solidarity with persons with albinism and support their cause. And indeed, this is what people who gathered at Nazareth outside Soweto did. While celebrating and supporting people with albinism, they did not forget the challenges they have to contend with in their daily lives. And the United Nations says these people are resilient. Abigail Nogu is the United Nations Commissioner for Human Rights. In many ways, um, persons with albinism experience such unfortunate forms of dehumanization. There are often many myths about using their body parts for witchcraft. There have been stories that uh, persons with albinism have told about people being disappeared or disappearances. So I really think that we're still in a situation today where persons with albinism still face threats to their right to life, their right to security, their right to enjoy basic rights that all of us should be able to take for granted. Um, And they are human beings, just like all of us. And there is no reason why they should be treated so differently. Nkosinati Lamini is living with albinism. Life has been tough for him. He believes that people with a condition such as his are being discriminated against. Lamini says it is rare to find people with albinism employed by huge corporations or even smaller companies. You can go to any company in South Africa, any major company. It's rare to find an albino working there. They need to be educated uh, about being themselves and believing in themselves and going for their dreams because in most cases they just finish grade 12 and then that's it. And they also scared of going to varsities due to the fact of they get kidnapped and mutilated. The founder of Albinism Society of South Africa, Nomason Domazibugo, says she's campaigning for funding to help raise awareness of the issues affecting people with albinism. She says it's time for them to be empowered. We are going to partner with the office of the Premier where we're going to look at people with albinism and the entire people with a disability to be economically empowered. We know that the buzzword is a empower young people and we're looking forward with the people with disability they themselves starting their own businesses the society says they want to build a culture of self-reliance and get people with disabilities to be active citizens who will contribute towards economic growth garaba masumbuga sabc news johannesburg our headlines up next with nosile zuma
Thank you, Lolo. Good morning. Sudan's Public Prosecution Service has charged ousted President Omar al-Bashir with corruption, among other things. A top committee of the World Health Organization will convene in Geneva, Switzerland, to consider whether the current Ebola outbreak in Central Africa constitutes a global health crisis. And for the first time in the history of a democratic democratic South Africa, the president will not have a praise singer to lead him into the chamber during the State of the Nation address ceremony. Catch a full bulletin at 9 with N. Musa. Abari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir, Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Although unemployed, some young people remain hopeful that one day they will join South Africa's working class. Clement Defu and Zanelim Tombeni, both 22 from Alexandra, are graduates but without jobs. And as the country commemorates another youth day, Ndeba Mugobo spoke to these young people about their pain and frustration of not working and filed this report. Unemployment in South Africa has reached crisis proportion with at least over 27% of the country's population not working. But the worrying factor is that young people constitute around 60% of the unemployed. And one such person is the 22-year-old Lemon Defu, a business administration graduate from Alex. He says not working but having the entire family looking up to you to change their living conditions, it's just painful and frustrating. I believe when I say this, I'll say it for every young person who's out there. It's frustrating. You pass your metric, good marks. Go to college that your family can afford because not anybody can afford. And not everyone is the brightest. And not everyone will get an opportunity to get a bursary and study further. Not everyone will actually be president one day. But where we are, we do what we can. That's how we grow up. We do what we can. It's actually frustrating to actually be a student, be someone who is decreed, be someone who is learned, be someone who is well-spoken, be someone who can, can, you can see that, okay, this young man has potential, but then where does my potential go? It gets someone furious. And visibly frustrated, Defu says only hope keeps him going. There are a lot of people who are actually getting opportunities and things are happening, but just that it hasn't come to me, it doesn't mean it's not happening. Change takes time, we understand that, and with time comes patience, and if we're patient enough, eventually one day we'll get where we want to be. That's how it is. If we don't have hope, then we're dead. We have to just hope for the future, hope for the better, and see how, as we can see where we're coming from and the challenges we're facing, we're just trying to make it better so that the younger generation that's coming behind us can actually have it easier than what we have. So if it means now I have to open a business, maybe just chill by the corner, sell tomato, whatever, if it's going to bring in cash and it's going to help uplift my family, it's something I'm willing to do. Few kilometers away from Defus Place, another graduate, Sanelem Tomben, is anxiety is piling up. It's really difficult because 
at home, they look up to you, especially me as the last born. I was the first one to go to university, so they expect good things from me. And now it's been six months and there hasn't been any call. You go to interviews and nothing comes back to you. So it's just like, where to from here? And sometimes you even get the thoughts that maybe what I studied was not a good option or a good choice. So maybe I should go back to school, but also being black finance is just not supporting you at that moment. And in as far as you only get one shot. But he doesn't want to lose focus and hope like many who fell by the wayside and resorting to drugs. I am hopeful that we will make it. Like they say, many are called, but only a few are chosen. I hope that we will all make it at some point. I mean, we cannot make it at the same time. We don't finish our laps at the same time, but we will make it. That's just what I think. I'm very much hopeful. With the best government policies and programs in place to ensure a better life for all, political analyst Ralph Mateja says implementation of these programs is always a problem. Government make promises and tend to take a very relaxed attitude or a generally relaxed attitude when it comes to implementation of policy. One does not actually see commitment to meet those promises when it comes to the execution of policy, when it comes to prioritization in government. The challenge with that kind of an arrangement is that it raises concerns about the credibility of democracy. If you make promises, you don't deliver a democracy. People tend to lose hope about the ability of democracy. In that way, young people are going to be psychologically affected. They will have a sense of despair because... They will be looking at the system that is not delivering. And while South Africa is worried about the rocketing unemployment, the governing ANC has now vowed to bring down unemployment rate to 14% within the next five years. And for this to be realized, it has since introduced a new Ministry of Employment and Labor led by trade unionist Tulas Ngesi. All eyes will be on Minister Ngesi and his team to see what formula and tools do they have to reduce the country's unemployment rate by almost half in 2024. I am Debo Mokobo in Johannesburg. A South African man who went on a racist video rant while on holiday on a Greek island has spoken out about the incident. Adam Katsavelos made a brief appearance at the Randburg Magistrates Court in Johannesburg on Thursday. Katsavelos told the media inside court that what he did was an act of madness and he has apologized. Abongile Dumako has more. Adam Katsavelos in court for his second appearance this followed a case of crimen injuria opened by the EFF Gauteng Chepesin, Mandi Samashiro. He made headlines after his video, which he filmed using the K-word, while on holiday went viral, causing an uproar in the country. He says he is sorry. In my moment of madness that I had last year, I'm completely embarrassed and utterly ashamed at what I did and what I said. And, I, and I, I express my sympathy and sorrow to anyone who upset and whose dignity I harmed. I had no intention of doing any of that. And I'm here to face my consequences and I'm really sorry about any harm that I may have caused them. Casavelos could face prosecution in Greece. His lawyer, Loli Shane, has told the media that they have received a letter from the Greek authorities informing them of their intentions to prosecute him. But the National Prosecuting Authority, the NPA, won't confirm these developments. Here is spokesperson Pindim Jonondwana. Well, uh, we don't have such information as the NPA, but we will liaise with the investigating officer to try and establish if those facts are true. But for now, we cannot confirm that. EFF Provincial Chairperson Mandi Samashiro says they'll support authorities in Greece on the matter.
We'll welcome uh, the SAPS confirming for us that the Greeks have a case. And uh, who knows, maybe we can fundraise and ask somebody out there to buy us an air ticket mm-hmm. when he appears in a Greek court and we can go and sit there and watch international law and watch international forces help us to fight racism decisively. Katsavelos is expected back in court on July 10. I'm Abongile Dumago in Johannesburg. India's ruling Hindu nationalists are on a rampage in an opposition rule state to try and topple its government. Bodies of political rivals were piling up in West Bengal as its fiery chief minister, Mamata Banerjee, refused to be prodded by her loyal followers to avenge their fallen comrades. Rana Sen reports. Prominent Muslim author Sayyid Abbas despaired as India's ruling BJP party and Banerjee's Trinamool Congress or TMC clashed in the killing fields of Bengal. This is a competition of violence. BJP comes in fighting with the police. What is happening? This is unrest. This is not good for a state. And this is definitely not good for democracy. Bengal is highly hailed for its wonderful literature and the great scholars that they generate and produce from there. And now it comes to this hooliganism. I think this needs to be controlled. But it is the BJP's political right to keep the pot boiling in the opposition rule state, argued hawkish Hindu leader Desh Raj Nigam. Mamta Banerjee has to understand one thing. She is the chief minister. She has a certain set of duties and responsibilities she's supposed to discharge. When you allow a rally for your own self yesterday and then try to uh, ban a rally of uh, the opposition party, that is where the differences arise. It is their political right to take the fight to Mamta Banerjee. That is where there has to be a level playing field, which is not being given to the BJP. And political analyst Ujjwal Choudhury said the West Bengal chief minister was walking straight into the BJP's trap. BJP has a game plan. And this game plan is to keep the Bengal politics boiling. And Mamta is straightly walking into the trap of BJP. Having said that, the average Bengali is caught between the devil and the deep sea. On one side, they have Trinamul Congress, which has been also bringing in violence and decimating the left opposition. And they have BJP on the other side, which has been also involved in uh, majoritism. But BJP spokeswoman Puja Suri insisted Banerjee has lost her right to govern. There is a big change of wind in West Bengal. And having sensed that Mamta Banerjee, she is unable to see the real state of affairs in the state right now. And after she realized that how uh, badly she is lost in the state, she is uh, almost lost her mind. Since she is the chief minister of the state, she has failed on every front. If it had been such a good state of the things there, then TMC would not have lost that badly. BJP rose from 2 seats to 18 seats, which is a huge number. The BJP tasted some success in Bengal in recently ended national elections. But it wants more, and that too at any cost. This is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. Vladimir Putin's ascent to power 19 years ago has had a profound effect on Russia's film industry. Spooks... Spies and assorted men in uniform are now a permanent fixture on Russian television and cinema screens. The BBC's monitoring Francis Scar has been looking at this less explored aspect of President Putin's rule. Switch on a TV set in Russia and chances are that before too long you'll hear something like this. In the series Sleepers, 
Secret Service operative Andrei Rodionov bravely defends his motherland against terrorists sponsored by undercover American agents. His subject is close to Vladimir Putin's heart, a former KGB spy himself who served in East Germany. Since becoming president, Putin has brought his fellow Secret Service operatives not just to the top echelons of power, but also to the silver screen. The films featuring spooks often present a version of events distant from reality. Countdown includes a highly doctored retelling of a 2002 terrorist attack in Moscow. In the film, a major from the KGB's successor, the FSB, completes a daring rescue mission to save a circus audience after they're taken hostage. But in the actual Dubrovka theatre siege on which the scene is based, 130 hostages died in a notoriously bungled operation. The FSB cares so much about this genre that it has even set up its own prize. It rewards productions for containing what it calls the positive image of a state security officer. Alek Kalugin, a former KGB general now living in the United States, believes that this is how the government manipulates public opinion. Given that uh, former intelligence operatives are in charge of the Russian state now, and that includes the president himself, the whole attitude has changed. Even though the Cold War is over, it is obvious that Russia wants its people to think that foreign powers, especially in the West, are enemies of Russia and its government. Ksenia Larina, a journalist and expert on the Russian media, says the Kremlin is using traditional Soviet-style propaganda to keep the Russian people behind it. The main reason behind this is to provide support for the Russian government's official ideology, in cinema, in literature, in the media, and of course on TV. Many in uniform are heroes again, and people are supposed to look up to them. We've seen it all in the Soviet era and in other dictatorships. Our propaganda has nothing new to offer here. State-controlled TV channels do not hold back when talking up Russia's intelligence services in their news bulletins. The center specialists have been involved in solving tasks of unprecedented complexity. Across every TV format conceivable, agents are typically portrayed as heroic defenders of the nation. And with Vladimir Putin at the helm, Spooks don't look like leaving Russian screens anytime soon. That report by the BBC's Francis Scar. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Mohoko.
Good morning. For the first time in history of a democratic South Africa, the president will not have a praise singer or god of honor to lead him into the chamber during the State of the Nation address ceremony. This in a bid to cut costs. There will, however, be eminent persons invited from provinces. Nine lucky winners of a radio competition would no longer be traveling to the address, also as part of the cost-cutting measures. There would also be no state-sponsored dinner for MPs and other VIPs following President Ramaphosa's speech next week. Zambian President Edgar Lungu says that the country will be fine and break ties with mining firms that fail to operate according to Zambia's laws, escalating a dispute with India-listed Vedanta. Vedanta is fighting Zambia's decision last month to name a provisional liquidator to run its Konkola copper mines business and is seeking international arbitration. Zambia Africa's second-largest copper producer says KCM has breached the terms of its license. Foreign investment in sub-Saharan Africa rose 13% last year to $32 billion U.S. dollars, barking a global downward trend and reversing two years of decline. This according to a United Nations report, which further says development of new mining and oil projects a new U.S. development finance institution and the ratification of an agreement to create a continent-wide free trade area could further boost foreign direct investment in 2019. The United Nations Conference on Trade and Development says Africa stands in sharp contrast to developed economies, which saw FDI inflows plunge 27% to their lowest level since 2004. The Clothing and Textile Conference in Cape Town, South Africa, has been told about success stories of the U.S.-Africa Growth Opportunity Act Agoa. The act significantly enhances market access to the United States for qualifying sub-Saharan African countries. Executive Vice President of the American Apparel and Foodware Association, Steve Lamar, has encouraged the countries to use opportunities provided by the act. Lamar says Ethiopia is one of the countries that has benefited from the Agoa. One of the, the success stories that we point to in Africa over the last couple of years is when um, several brands recruited their partners from um, Asia, primarily from China, but some were Taiwanese, to come to um, Ethiopia and set up both the productive capacity for the end items, but also um, the vertical capability as well. And uh, that's an important story because what it reflects is that as more production was coming from Ethiopia, one of the successful ingredients was there was a lot of Chinese slash Asian investment in the Ethiopia of production. The Kingdom of Eswatini's Minister of Finance, Neil Rishkenberg, has commended the Central Bank of Eswatini for taking a proactive role in modernizing the country's financial services industry and working towards global standards in finance and technology. Making his remarks during the consultative forum on central bank-issued digital currencies, the minister said, technological changes along with market developments, presented the financial sector with a wide range of new options 
to enhance access to financial services and products and improve business efficiencies. He, however, said these technological changes also presented the country with an array of new risks. The U.S. dollar is trading at 357.69 Nigerian Nara, 10.73 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan shilling 13 cents and 13.14 Zambian Kwacha. In Brex currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 385 Brazilian roll, 64.61 Russian ruble, 69.37 Indian rupee, 6.93 Chinese yuan and 14.86 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. Gold $1,345, platinum $812 pounds. The price of brand crude oil is at $61.67 a barrel. From an African perspective. What's on the agenda? What's on the lineup for this weekend? Uh, Proteas, when are they playing? On Saturday? They're playing tomorrow. Oh, uh, yes, tomorrow. Mm. They're playing tomorrow. They have to win to start mm. to show that they're serious about going into <laughs> the next round. And they said they will be playing as if this is a quarterfinal. So I trust them. But also we got the news from the IAAF where they, they lost from the Federal Supreme Court to say they wanted to reimpose the eligibility regulations on Casta Semenya, but then the court says no, wait up until the end of the month when we will decide about that as well. Mm. Banyana Banyana lost yesterday, but they still have a chance to go to the knockout stages. Bafana Bafana are in Dubai preparing for the Africa Cup of Nations next week Friday. And uh, Bulls are playing up against the Stormers also. It's another... Vodacom Super Rugby, they were playing, trying to get the playoff sport. So, well, Just on South Africa's front, the only team that seems to be winning is uh, the Baby Box. The Baby Box are doing fine. They've won. Uh, they, they'll be playing against France on Monday. Mm. And then uh, and France are the defending champions. So probably they beat France and then they win the trophy and then bring the, you know, the, the, the happiness index will rise. Mm. Now, uh, Nigeria, when is Nigeria playing again in the Women's World Cup? No, Nigeria, I, 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 I haven't checked their, their Lina, schedule yeah. as, as to when they're going to play, but they've, at least they've won. Mm, they've mm. won. They have to relax a bit so that they can see who they're going to face in their group as well. All right, give us an update. First up in our sports update, it's news from uh, Switzerland. The Federal Supreme Court of Switzerland has rejected the IAAF's urgent request to be allowed to immediately reimpose its eligibility regulations on Casta Semenya. In order to issue, in order issued on the 12th of June, the Swiss Supreme Court upheld its prior order issued by the Court of Arbitration on the 31st of May in favor of Semenya. The Supreme Court's prior order requires the IAAF to immediately suspend the implementation of its eligibility regulations against Semenya in light of the athlete's pending appeal. After considering the IAAF's argument, 
the court has now determined in a second order that the IAAF's request failed to set out any reason or change in circumstance that would justify a reconsideration of the prior order. This means that Simenya remains permitted to compete without restriction in the female category at this time. And the IAAF and Arctic South Africa, ASA, have until June the 25th to make submissions to the Supreme Court on Simeon's request that the IWF regulations be suspended throughout the entire appeal proceedings. Then a solitary strike by Chinese Li Ying gave them a one-nil victory over South Africa's Banyana Banyana in Paris yesterday as ensured that Germany are the first guaranteed qualifier for the last 16 of the Women's World Cup. Li, who was brought into the Chinese starting lineup following their opening one-nil loss to the Germans in Group B, got in front of Bambani Mbani in the box to 10 in Zhang Rui's delivery five minutes before halftime. The Germans winners of the World Cup in 2003 and 2007 had beaten Spain 1 0 on Wednesday, having already defeated China by the same score line in the first match. Banyana Banyana is still looking for a first point at this World Cup, but the forgiving format of the tournament means they are not yet eliminated, with four third place teams are going through out of the six groups. We're wrapping up with rugby news where it is said to be an emotional affair at Loftus first Friday in Pretoria this Saturday when the Vodacom Bulls hold the Emirates Lions in the Vodacom Super Rugby final round robin clash with both sides determined to seal a playoff sport. Springboks and Bulls lock Archie Sneeman believes it is all set out to be a great prospect. Yeah, it was uh, not nice to miss half of the season, uh, the first half, but I've had the opportunity to play the rest of the season and I think it's been going pretty well. It's always nice playing the Lions, uh, especially when it's at Loftus. A sad moment actually, but um, I'm still looking forward to going out there and playing on Loftus and it's always been a, a massive honour for me and a privilege to play here. So I'm still looking forward to it, but uh, I'm sure afterwards uh, we'll maybe shed a tear or something, but looking forward to the game. And finally, golf news. Justin Rose roared home with three straight birdies to match Tiger Woods' record for the lowest US Open round ever shot at Pebble Beach. A six under par 65 that gave him a one-shot lead after the first round. That's the sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Pressure mounts on Sudan's military to hand over power to civilians, and UN chief condemns attack on two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutura Magaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us.